If you could touch the alien sand and hear the cries of strange birds and watch them wheel in another sky, would that satisfy you? Or would you rather listen to the Doctor Who podcast? Hello! Surprise! Yes, in an unscheduled DWP, purely because it happens to be a rather seminal date in the Doctor Who calendar. Doctor Who is 60 years old, only a little bit younger than Michelle and Drew, who join me. Good afternoon. (laughs) <laughs> no, he meant uh, with our ages combined. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. You, you yeah, and me they're, with our ages combined. That's exactly what I meant, Michelle. Just a little bit younger than us. That's, just, that's how just, that works. Just to clarify, um, <laughs> neither June nor I have reached 60 yet. Um, it's still... Are you kidding me? I'm 74. Look how good I look. <laughs> Always a good idea to start off talking about age, isn't it? <laughs> On the podcast. Oh, man. 60, 60 years, though. Um, what an amazing, amazing thing this is to be celebrating 60 years of Doctor Who. Doctor Who is always going to be able to celebrate an anniversary because, you know, it existed in the past and we're constantly moving in that direction, timey-wimey regardless. But the fact that we're celebrating 60 years and Doctor Who is actively on television, that is something to celebrate. Absolutely, and very surprising. And uh, I'm still one of those fans who continually think Doctor Who is going to disappear from our screens. And uh, I've never got the hiatus out of my system. But there we go. Anyway, we are here to go back all the way to 1963, where it all began. And the three of us are going to commentate on the very first episode of Doctor Who. Now, we've not done this on a DWP for a while, uh, but it's not unprecedented. And we have marked various milestones with commentary episodes before. So just in case you're new to the DWP and you'd like an idea of how this is going to work... Very shortly, we will instigate a countdown. We'll go three, two, one. And on one, the three of us will hit play on our legally purchased copies of An Unearthly Child. So we'll be watching it at the same time. And we will be commentating all the way through. So that means, as far as we're concerned, there's no editing, which is highly alarming uh, for for podcasters. Um, And we will do our absolute best not to talk over each other. So whether or not this will work or not remains to be seen. But Michelle, Drew, if you are ready, then we shall shall start the countdown. I am ready. Ready. Excellent. Okay. In three, two, one, and play. Now, there we go. I now have the title sequence of the very first doctor appearing on my screen and i've i've got the sound very very low so i can hear it just uh, just in the background to to talking here but um i do wonder what people would have made of this in 1963 because i've yet to see any historical television with such an iconic opening with such mysterious and engaging Especially, music. i mean no one gets more mysterious than uh, reg cranfield right i mean look at this guy who is this can't even see his eyes. Mm. Mysterious. Wandering into the dark. That music, I just, the way it makes your spine tingle and, and 
it is so effective, even 60 years later, this initial rendition of this theme is so otherworldly uh, and, and just extraordinary. I think the fact that you can find infinite numbers of different versions and arrangements of this theme tune online uh, without really digging very hard is uh, is testament to, to, to that fact, Michelle. It is incredibly captivating and it still... Mm-hmm sets my stomach going 35 40 years after i really got into to doctor who but yeah this is the first time that and possibly the only time when the theme tune continues into the first few minutes of the episode as well and we're relying purely on visuals our first major character <laughs> and it. most consistent and the sound oh. the tardis buzz hum that's not a buzz it's a hum <laughs> buzz hum <laughs> now I imagine uh you know watching this for the very first time uh would have been quite fascinating for people especially with this fade going into the Coal Hill school yeah because of course why would you focus on a police box right. which wouldn't have been mm-hmm. an uncommon sight in in the UK in 1963 advertisements ahead of time saying that that was going to be important <laughs> this feels like a school. Like this genuinely feels like a like a classroom setting. Yay, Barbara. I like to think this classroom is the same classroom mm. that Clara taught in. Yeah. In, in like a fifty years time, even though it's clearly a science lab and I think Clara taught maths. <laughs> Do you think the dialogue between Ian and uh, Barbara is is natural yeah. right from the off because I buy this conversation. Well, also, what I love too is we're getting the conversation between the two of them without seeing her first, right? Like it could have been one of those two girls that we just saw, but <laughs> we don't know like yet who this character is that they're, they're discussing. And and Barbara and Ian, uh, Barbara and Ian already seem to have a connection. I mean, there there there's a chemistry there, and I don't necessarily mean romantic at this point, but but they clearly trust each other. Mm-hmm. I think it's appropriate for there to be chemistry in a school laboratory, don't you? <laughs> well, I'm done. I'm done. I can't. I can't beat that. There's no reason for me to be here anymore. <laughs> That's as good as it and gets. And I love that these teachers are concerned about a student, and they're going to follow up on it. Yeah. Is isn't there a suggestion that uh, Barbara offers to teach Susan, as it turns out to be? at home i'm pretty certain there is a a dialogue there where she suggests oh yeah i'm quite happy to go and teach her or offer to help her at home and of course when when you think about how this episode pans out the two teachers kind of follow one of their students all the way home trying not to be seen on the way not sinister at all this is what happened all the time in the 1960s in (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's kind of weird to see anybody in education now uh, even suggest something like this and it's kind of like the litigious state of the of the world or that they would even have time to individually care yeah. about a single student whereas they have to worry about you know losing their office supplies or the fact that because he's teaching science he could potentially be shut down especially in say florida for our american listeners <laughs> i love that he's already resigned to help even before the suggestion was made Also, the callback to John Smith, 
uh, in all future episodes of Doctor Who uh, from this very first one is so cool. I didn't remember it was this episode. Oh, was it John to, Smith? In, in a moment, he's going to ask who she who's playing it, and this is the band. Ah, right. There we go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I think it's kind of cool that that uh, he's so hip. He knows music. You know, he's he's one of he's down with the cool kids. And she's you know she's I going out that. of her way to give extra materials to to susan and susan right off the bat even from that first look does seem so unearthly she looks otherworldly she seems mysterious yeah if you know if this hadn't come out before star trek i would say that her current outfit is an attempt at an early original series star trek (laughs) uniform I would. I have never ever thought that but i can see exactly what you You mean put a little bit of a, a kind of cut to that um, I mean, it, it makes it sense, too, that she is wearing the style at the time, right? So it's sort of a mod outfit. But uh, and, and then, of course, immediately opens up the book, French Revolution. Well, this isn't right at all. <laughs> and we're going to, you know, find out this is a part of her father's favorite part in history. And then we're going to visit this in, like, you know, a short period of time later, which is uh, actually now that I'm thinking about it, it they didn't know that they were going to... Have, go past the edge of destruction, right? So, like the fact that this was mm. not scripted, mm. that they were going to go into the the French Revolution uh, at this point in time, too, which is another callback to the, its original episode. And here they are, parked outside. I have w- always found the perceived or, or the off-screen adventures of Susan and the First Doctor that precede this story to be incredibly intriguing and uh, I, and there've been precious few attempts uh, e- even through novels and so on to actually go um, into that particular era but I love the idea uh, that Susan just kind of suggested um, that actually you know this isn't right it isn't right how does she know it isn't right because she's probably right. been there already or, or she's um, or she knows an awful lot about it I'd like to know where else uh, that she's been and this this scene where you kind of see her be a little bit of a know-all, I suppose, suggests that she knows considerably more than she should. There's a big Finnish uh, companion chronicle that I loved. It was by Mark Platt, is by Mark Platt, and I'm not going to remember the title in the moment, but it does. it is one of those stories that takes Susan and her grandfather uh, to a world before this. It exactly fills in the time period you're talking about. So The beginning, um, I think you'll find should it's Google called. That. Yeah. yeah, is it? No, 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 it wasn't that one. It was not that one. No, it was one before then. Um, I think that idea is really interesting, but also they would have to stay true to who the Doctor is portrayed in this episode as being kind of the villain. So, you know, I having not listened to that particular story, I'm, I'm curious to see if the Doctor is portrayed as being the first Doctor that we kind of know and love from the second and third series versus the early first series where he's very antagonistic and, and in many ways kind of cruel and it feels like quite selfish. So that would be interesting to see how it feels with the narrative continuity. It, w- it was very appropriate. I don't get the feeling he was ever a villain. 
uh, I, I feel all the other words you use to describing. Well, I'm with you com- completely. Uh, I, I just like the ambiguity of, of of not knowing whether this highly intelligent, very well informed individual is. Oh no, he's absolutely a, the antagonist. Maybe villain's not the correct word, but he's certainly the antagonist, antagonist of this. Yeah. Because our heroes are certainly these two teachers, right? And they're there to protect a child from potential abuse. Um, because we know that the at this from their point of view, the doctor is keeping her from doing a lot of things that they feel is normal and that she should be doing. Also, you know, is is mm. she living in a junkyard? Right. Like that's like, is she living in poverty? Is this poor child starving like that? All these things. And they don't know. So from from our point of view. Right. Like these these are certainly the heroes. And I think they're meant to be, especially um, in this situation. But, yeah, the the doctor essentially allows someone to get electrocuted and then kidnaps them. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. The antagonist <laughs> of the first episode also is going to bash someone's head in, in, in another yeah. story, like two stories from now. So not. Not the goody that we know and love uh, now. Yeah, no, you're probably right. Maybe I'm moving closer to villain um, <laughs> after listening to you there. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I I think certainly he's very selfish. Um, I I I think knowing what we know now, um, it's to do with his preoccupation with being stranded and not being able to get home. Whilst he kind of relishes that uh, that freedom, um, I think. Beneath it all, there is a slight concern that he can't control the TARDIS and he can't get home. Um, and, he, and he uses that to, to wax lyrical when lecturing uh, Ian and Barbara a little bit later when they gatecrash his home, essentially. I mean, true, but at the same time, we are taking what we know of the Doctor from you know many years of watching yes. it yes, and yes. sort of projecting it onto this. At this point in time, with a single episode, if we're an audience watching this 60 years ago... Uh, baddie, <laughs> total, total evil baddie in a bad, uh, in a, it's sort of like a Dickensian character who's taken an orphan, a very smart child and is controlling her. So yeah, not great, but ah, uh, here it comes the iconic line. It's alive, which I know means that it's saying there's power running through it, but in the same way, they've taken that line and they've run with it and it's become sort of the, the emphasis of, of what the TARDIS is. Also, he goes around the entirety of it too. Yeah, it's that you gotta do that. That we yeah. see. <laughs> but that buzz, that TARDIS hum. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I attended the BFI. Um, uh, for, there was an event uh, that was only an hour and a half long. Uh, that was all about uh, the um, the. The TARDIS, the TARDIS, and um, Mark Ayers was there. I was there with Adam, and um, they they talked about how many different choices they had, uh, which they didn't use for the TARDIS hum, and, and how it came into being. And it was it was stunning. It was it was really really interesting stuff to listen to. And yes, so where are we now? We are twelve minutes into this episode, and we've met the Doctor. Yeah. So yeah, we get the first sort of meeting and confrontation between the two of you and he's such an aloof he's he's just playing with them yeah. too he's he is purposely being a jerk uh <laughs> why are you spying on her he's got a point <laughs> yes he has have you never heard of safeguarding <laughs> <laughs> So just a, a brief little story um 
the this Unearthly Child was not available on stream just just like it is now. It's not available wasn't available on streaming when I first got into Doctor Who. Uh, so I ordered the DVDs of it and I you know I put it in, I hit play, um, and I watched it without watching the rest of the episode, just the Unearthly Child. And I was like, wow, he's, it seems it's kind of impressive. It's kind of a shoddy piece, but it was years. Um, before I realized that I had just hit play all, and what what had played was not this televised episode, but the original pilot, uh. um, which I had watched multiple times, and then decided to um, I'll just watch the rest of the story. And I think I went rather than play all, I hit skip to chapter. So I didn't watch the this vis- uh, this one, the one that everyone knows and loves, for probably two years into my mm. fandom of Doctor Who, when I was asked to to introduce Doctor Who at a coffee shop that I, I frequented for the 50th anniversary. So I started playing, I'm like, wait, this is the wrong episode. And it turned out to be the right episode. So the first time I watched it was in public <laughs> with a bunch of people, even though I had technically, quote unquote, seen it two or three times before that. Well, there are very few, very few um, differences, really. There's lots yeah. of sound cues and there's a couple of scenes that they they, they switch. The TARDIS hum um, being one of the examples of sounds that uh, differs in the pilot, but uh, but they are very very close. I love this scarf, by the way. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> he he's got a scarf right off the bat, and I just love it. And that cloak. Mm-hmm. Hat and scarf. Hat and scarf. You're right. Yes, there it is. Right at the very first episode of Doctor Who. And hat and scarf. You always associate with Tom Baker. Always. Right. Even though McCoy did. I'm actually looking forward to seeing it colorized in in the um, the colorization of the Daleks. Yeah. Yep. There we go. Uh huh. Yeah. I love the original TARDIS design that that lasted for much of the classic series. Well, the sense of scale is there right from the from the off, and uh, I we we know from an adventure in space and time that uh, they didn't have loads of money, uh, so this was purely um, down to creativity of, of, of the set designers, and I think they've achieved wonders. I still look at this, um, and I can be, and I am wowed by it just as much as I am with the new modern TARDISes, as and when they get. Uh, get paraded for the first time. I love time. how there are two different size rondels, rondels in, in the TARDIS. So, you, you know, the, the front has a size and the the back. And then they could have easily gone, you know, the the stark white uh, science fiction-y look. But then they're like, let's just throw in some antique props because it's about time travel. And it, they would occasionally <laughs> get souvenirs like this three-headed bird that's holding up a something-something that's currently in the background i don't know what that is do we ever really see that again it's magnificent whatever it is i wonder where it went i wonder where the prop ended oh, up. i'm sure someone's got these i'm sure someone has these and is not going to ever tell anybody that they do just like just like the uh unaired episodes that that someone's got in their collection that we're learning about now it's just like we're yes. afraid of litigation so we're just gonna look at it and smile but this argument back and forth. I, I wonder how much of this stuff would have got yeah. chucked out, though, um, right from right from the outset. No one knew it was going to be iconic. No one knew it was going to be successful. So the amount of sets and props that would have been either recycled or just not kept track of. I mean, if they didn't even keep uh, a record of the 
the tapes themselves, then why on earth would they waste money keeping props and sets that they were never going to use again? So much well, of it I imagine all destroyed. of those kind of anachronistic pieces that we're seeing in the background came from, you know, the the what is the term that I'm looking for when you have like a period piece props from the the BBC closet? They probably went right back mm-hmm. so they, to mm-hmm. go for all the um, period pieces that they produced ad nauseum. So I love that this is a a, a... there we yeah. go yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> of what the TARDIS can <laughs> do. But it's a, such a good relationship, and it, and it's one that is going to last at least for another couple of months, as far as the viewers are concerned, right? Like, so they're they're using a battle of wits right yeah. now. It, it's it's almost like a um, uh, a, oh here a it trial is. for uh, like. <laughs> oh, sorry, that line though. No, it's good. It's good. Oh, which line is that? Sorry, since no one else can hear it except us. <laughs> that was a, a traveler what thought about what it would be like to be travelers in the fourth dimension. <laughs> it's unusual, isn't it, that you actually get a number of moments from a first episode that last so long. I mean, um, series that really end up developing a reputation like Doctor Who, I think rarely just establish everything in the first episode as robustly and as efficiently as an unearthly child does. I mean, you get the TARDIS, you get an explanation of the TARDIS, you get a description and and quite clearly a demonstration of who the Doctor is. And uh, you, you just get the access the accessibility i think for the for the viewer through the companions into this world is there right from the very off i think and i'm i'm not certain but i think had i watched this without knowing it was going to become the institution it became i would have been intrigued i would certainly have been intrigued enough to to tune in the following week maybe after the fourth episode i might not have bothered <laughs> again <laughs> um but uh, but this episode, I think, is almost perfect, Doctor. Yeah, it's true, and I love it. Ian's like, ah, oh, the hubris that he just because he's a science teacher, he should be able to figure out how to open the doors, right? Like, just doctors, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I have to admit that I um, was reading up a little bit on the about time uh, thing about this uh, book, about this, and there's this wonderful quote about that this begins. A cranky old man begins a long-term career insulting the intelligence of human beings. <laughs> right. That's great. <laughs> as, as he allows him to get electrocuted. <laughs> so brilliant. But, but also what's nice about this is the camera is moving in such a way that we are allowed to see a little bit more of the set in mm. this. So, you know, it, it's the camera was a still fought, shot towards the doors and you know you could think that that's all the set was allowed to be but we get actually a little bit of movement here to allow to see almost uh 180 around the tardis console which is pretty cool i guess you have to when when so much of the opening episode is set within the tardis i mean we've been in here almost on a continuous scene yeah now pretty for, much what, 10 minutes yeah 12 minutes and there's been very few cuts um i mean here we're going back and forth to, to them, which, you know, we're not going to get as much of in, in future scenes. It's like, you know, you leave the camera running, but we've had something like 15, 20 cuts, which, you know, was not an easy... Oh, someone has activated the TARDIS. <laughs> oh. The first time we see the time road yeah, to moving I know, as it's well. Just, uh, this is, again, 
um, one of those things that's become famous in something like Star Trek, where like you shake the camera and you have them kind of wobble around like fools. But then this this is such a great directorial <laughs> choice uh, to to show to cut outside of the TARDIS to have London and then to pan away from it and have London just fade into the darkness. Mm. And now that opening credit is explained. Like, this is the time vortex, even though they don't specifically describe it as such. Uh, And that is what we're going to see when we move. I always thought that was a rocket until it started splaying like that. You know, I always saw it as like the the fire of uh, some kind of space vehicle. Another effect that has persisted through the years, you know, obviously it's more modern with more effects, but we're still using the same sort of idea to represent the time vortex. Yeah. Yeah, and each showrunner and each doctor kind of gets their own version of what that looks like. Uh, and I also like that um, the doctor and Barbara, uh, sorry, the doctor and Susan um, are standing during this. You, and they, even though they are being affected by it, it's clearly not affecting them as much as it is affecting Ian and Barbara. Uh, and then this final shot of, I mean, just like the TARDIS, because we don't really see it de- dematerialize, but here we see it materialize uh, here in just a moment. And it's so cool. I never quite figured out why they're unconscious. Uh, I, I mean, again, I think it was like, as I was referring to earlier, I feel like they're, they have never gone into that uh, time travel before. It has an effect on, on lesser beings. Oh, the shadow. Well, for, for this one yeah. story. Well, and I get the feeling the TARDIS had been there on Earth for some time. Maybe... TARDIS being the TARDIS, maybe there's something funky about the way it reacted to having these humans in it for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) I I like that version better. I think that's good. Uh, Although, having said that, again, if you think to the 2005 series, uh, for the first few episodes, whenever the TARDIS took off, it shook. And you you had... Flying around the TARDIS. Piper, (laughs) you know, rolling around. Yeah. At one point, you know, really enjoying themselves so perhaps that is a deliberate uh, link back to the original episode as well you never know so well you know here's another way to to mentally explain it is with the doctor and the tardis telepathically linked as we'll find out later maybe because the doctor is so anxious and irritated and upset about these human beings that have invaded his space uh, maybe the tardis is acting on that as well and is uh, giving them a little bit more rough time than 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 she will later I also like the idea too, because remember, River Song says that the Doctor does not know how to actually fly the TARDIS, um, and she's telling that to Matt Smith, who has had you know hundreds of years of practice. This is this is shortly after they've stolen it. He doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, he can't even. He's he just can't uh, even steer you know, it. it's, it's like a student driver <laughs> stealing a car and, and going on a road trip for the first time. You know, he's still grinding the gears. I mm. want to correct myself. Uh, we don't see the TARDIS materialize. Uh, that was on me. It was a me. The memory cheating of saying, like, I re- absolutely was jumping the gun, trying to be, like, cool about it. And nope, completely wrong. So all of you who are screaming at the uh, your podcast players, um, yeah, I admit it. I don't know what I'm talking and, about. And let me, the, the, the Big Finish Companion Chronicle that I love so much is called Quinnis. It's by Mark Platt, and it is the Doctor and Susan on an alien world, Quinnis, um, and it is a self-contained um, adventure with incredible world building set in the time before they come to Earth and, and, and get involved there. I recommend that one. 
Well, there you go, listeners. If you'd wondered where Michelle had gone earlier on in the episode, that was because I am pretty certain she was Googling, trying to find the title of that particular <laughs> and, story. And, and well being, done, Michelle, for finding it. And being not too it. far off 60 years old, I, I don't Google very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you very much indeed, uh, Michelle and Drew, for, for joining me for this special episode of the Doctor Who podcast. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed the celebratory nature of it. I think this, this must be the most positive um, vibes that the DWP have generated on one particular episode for a very, very long time. So, hope you enjoy your anniversary. Couple of days now to new Doctor Who. Hope you can contain your excitement for that as well. I will struggle. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for joining us on this rewatch of the very first episode ever. Um, always a good thing to do on a Doctor Who anniversary, and even better with friends. Oh, absolutely. I watch um, this episode uh, every year. I, if I can do it at 5.15 p.m., I, I do so. But uh, uh, even though we just recorded this and this is playing and coming out, uh, 5.15 in the U.S., I'm still going to be sitting down and watching this because that is tradition and uh, this is one of the reasons we love the show so much. So thank you for uh, allowing me to watch it with you. Mm, and we will leave on the mystery as to whether or not Drew watches An Unearthly Child at 5.15 on British time or US time. Bye-bye. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>